7, and looking at this final picture, the last 15 chapters, and we, I've called this the promise of the Spirit, because from chapter 34 on, you have Ezekiel giving pictures of here's what's going to happen when Christ comes, when the Spirit is poured out, the, these amazing pictures of radical transformation and amazing restoration is going to occur. And in the last few chapters, beginning at chapter 40 through the end of the book, you have visions of a temple. And the intent of these visions of this amazing temple that's to come was not so that people would one day think we need to build yet a third or a fourth temple or that in the end days and the end times there's going to be this amazing temple that we need to be looking out for. But Ezekiel himself tells us by the word of the Lord that the purpose of the temple was so that the people would be ashamed of their sins. And it's not that, okay, here's this temple pattern so that you'll build it. But by seeing this vision of this new temple, that it would cause the people to be ashamed of what they've done and want to have renewed lives for God ultimately. And that's the scene that's put before us with this. Now, I'll say one final thing about this before we get into the text is that rather than seeing a temple image of a physical temple, you are supposed to see Christ. In all of these amazing details about the temple, you are supposed to see Christ. And so that's what we will do one more time as we look at chapter 47. Listen to these early uh, pictures here, the first six verses, first five verses of Ezekiel chapter 47. It reads there, and then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the water and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand and the river was that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. This is an amazing sequence of, of, of pictures of in this new temple as it's laid out is this trickle of water seems to be coming out of the temple. And yet as you start moving further and further away from the temple, the temple gets wider and deeper and it gets to a point. I mean, you can imagine first it's ankle deep and you're kind of kicking it around with your shoes a little bit. And then it says, well, you get to the point where you can't even cross it. Imagine this raging river. He says, it's so deep you can swim in it, but you can't cross it. There's just this thunderous flow of water that is exploding out of the temple. And I want you to notice in verse 6, here is this question now to, to Ezekiel, have you seen this? And I'm going to explain to you ultimately what an angel is going to tell Ezekiel, what all of this means. Why do we have this river that starts as a trickle and then becomes this thunderous flow that is coming out of that temple? And you'll notice in verse 7, after he leads him back to the bank of the river, 
It says there in verse 7, As I went back, I saw the bank of the river with very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Now, this is a truly stunning declaration that is being made. Here is this river coming out of the temple. It's flowing to the east. And the text says it's going into a valley and then flows into the sea. Now, you got your map in your mind if you've grown up in the pews and you're going east out of Jerusalem. The sea that you have to the east is the Dead Sea. And I want you to think about what this is saying is the river is now flowing from the temple into the Dead Sea to such a degree that it says there in verse 8 that when the water flowed into the sea, the water became fresh. The river has the power to take the Dead Sea and make it fresh water. Now, to understand how totally impossible that idea is for us in physical terms is that for the longest time, in fact, up until the 21st century, the Jordan River flowed into the Dead Sea and it was the largest water source for Israel. And at that time, it used to flow about 1.3 billion cubic meters of water a year. So I just want you to think about this. In a year, 1.3 billion cubic meters of water flow into the Dead Sea, and it didn't do a dent ever to that Dead Sea. It stayed dead. You can float in it. There is not life in terms of plants or animals that live in the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows all that water in there, and it stays a Dead Sea. And yet, here is this amazing scene that, but with this temple, the water that flows out of it, it's going to transform a Dead Sea. To such a degree that it's described as these pure, fresh waters that exist in verse 8. And not only that, notice the power that it gives in verse 9. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engelium, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. So here is this scene is that not only is the Dead Sea not going to be full of salt and dead. One of the reasons it's called the Dead Sea is because there's no plant life and there's no animal life in there. And now he says that's going to be changed. Life is going to be exploding in the Dead Sea. And he says to such a degree that he describes there in verse 9 that, that or verse 10 that the fishing will be like the fishing of the Mediterranean. So I, you know what I had to do? I'm like, well, what's the fishing in the Mediterranean like? So here goes Google. You can fish like crazy in the Mediterranean. You can book fishing tours for the, for the Mediterranean Sea. You know, all kinds of life is teeming in the Mediterranean. And here is he saying that this life that in river is going to come out of the temple is going to so dramatically change the Dead Sea that it would be like the Mediterranean Sea. It will be full of life, full of animals, full of plants. People will be fishing in it. It's just going to be radically transformed. And yet another interesting picture in verse 11. 
In verse 11 it says, But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And you might read that initially and go, well, that seems awfully strange. Is it that the power of this river and the life that God is giving is somehow unable to fully transform this? But that the marshes here are are, are left and the swamps are left with with salt. But I want us to, to think about, you know, a little bit about the Dead Sea, that the salt is of the most importance That comes out of there. That is part of their industry. That is part of their structure that they have there. And you might remember that you have in the the law of Moses that God wanted all of his sacrifices and all of his offerings to have salt in them because it was a picture of God's faithfulness, a picture of God's covenant. And so there is this picture that, yes, I'm going to completely transform the sea and give it life, but I'm going to keep some of it where the salt will still remain. So it's as if you can still keep my my sacrifices and offerings a memorial and a reminder of the covenant that God has with his people, as well as part of the necessity for those people in that land. And so you see that picture given in verse 11. And then one more amazing picture in verse 12. And on the banks... On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Final picture. The river is going to be so full of life and healing and transformation that the trees that are along the banks of the river are going to produce fresh fruit all year long, every month. Now, if you've had fruit trees, you know that's not how fruit trees work. They don't bear fruit for 12 months a year. They have their time, and then they stop, and then they regenerate, and they go dormant, and they sprout again. Here is this picture of the power of what God is going to do with this river will cause fruit to bear all the time, 24-7, as well as the leaves that are pictured as giving healing to the people and healing to the nations. And so fruit for food, leaves for healing. Staggering pictures of God saying, here's what my temple is going to do. Here is how it's going to change everyone. Now, there are two New Testament places that seize upon this imagery. One of them that we will eventually get to in our Sunday morning class is in Revelation 22. And I want you to listen to the imagery that's there. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's not hard to hear the total borrowing of that imagery from Ezekiel 47. We've got fruit trees bearing all year long beside the river of life. And the trees are described as the tree of life. And it's for the healing of the nations. One of the big pictures that God is showing here is that everyone was going to have access. Healing of the nations is depicted in this life that that is is being given. The second picture, though, that we're going to look at here, and then we'll look at it again at the end, is in John 7, 37. As Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here we are in this section of Ezekiel that is about the coming of the spirit and what that's going to entail. And you're seeing Jesus stand up and basically say, I'm the temple with the living water. Standing up on that great day, if you thirst, I have the water you need. If you thirst, I'm the one that gives life. I'm that very picture. And how powerful that would come from the gospel of John. Because in John 2, Jesus was the one that said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. I'm the temple you're looking for. Five chapters later, stands up on the last day of the feast and says, Not only I'm the temple, I'm that river of water that's flowing and giving life and healing and restoration to all the nations. And so you have a beautiful picture of what Jesus is ultimately doing, that Jesus is the source of healing. He's the source of life. He's the source of hope. I want you to hold that idea in your mind because I want to bring in what the rest of chapters 47 and 48 do in a quick summary. Can't read all of all of this section. What? I want you to notice, though, as a quick overview, is that you have the distribution now of the inheritance being described. You see in verse 13 of chapter 47 that there is this boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. You have all this portioning going on. Now, here's what I want you to think about of why this book would end on distributing the land because that seems really strange. It seems like we should just end on the temple imagery. That would be amazing. That would be great. Why do we have a picture of now the distributing of the land? You look at verse chapter 48, you scan your eyes down, starts naming the territory of all the different tribes. Why do this? What is trying to be communicated here? I want to remind us that When you see God distributing the lamb, that is basically the capstone of him distributing his blessings. Think about it like this. You have God who comes through Moses and delivers the people out of Egyptian slavery, brings them through the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, cares for them in the wilderness, brings them to the promised land, destroys the enemies, and what's the final piece that had to happen that God distributed the land to all the tribes? And thus they were able to, they were supposed to at least, live in peace as God cared for them. That's the final piece of all of the blessings of God. It's the culmination of all that God has said he would do for his people. And I want you to see the same thing as being given here. From chapter 34 on is all of these descriptions of here is what Christ is going to do. How he's going to change hearts, change people, give life to the dead. He's going to be like rivers of living water that's going to restore everyone. And the final picture is, and everyone's going to enjoy the inheritance that God has promised. In fact, there is a key distinction about this inheritance. You might remember when Joshua was distributing the land, it was commanded by God back in Numbers chapter 26 that the land would be divided by tribe size. In fact, if you can think about or you want to look at your map in the back of your Bible, those are all different sizes, right? Judah's got a big piece and you might Simeon's got this little circle and it's all different sizes because it was distributed 
by size of tribe. But notice chapter 47 and verse 14 of Ezekiel, where it says there, And you shall divide equally what I swore to give to your fathers. This land shall uh, fall to you as your inheritance. So notice the eternal inheritance that is being depicted is not by tribe size, but everyone has an equal portion. And I want you to notice how it's given to everyone. Listen to verse 22 now of chapter 47. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the foreigner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord. So notice that there's a picture of the ability for any, even the outsiders who belong now to Israel are able to enjoy equal access, equal distribution of the land, equal inheritance. Everyone is able to participate in this great inheritance that God is promising. And I don't have time for all the places to run to in the New Testament, but I want you to note just two places with me that you hear this echo of the inheritance for us. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Here is Ezekiel giving a vision of that. That not only would it be physical born, but all the world could be as if they were citizens of Israel itself, as if they were naturally born Israelites. And here is now the writer of Hebrews says, because he is the mediator of a new covenant, that's what makes it possible for us to have this promised inheritance. Same thing in First Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. This is probably one of... One of my favorite pictures about our inheritance. Peter says, because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. To me, there is always something so powerful about the idea of God holding a reservation for you. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. It can't fade away, and he's holding it in heaven for you. You have this glorious inheritance. This is your living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you're getting a picture from Ezekiel. A glorious inheritance awaits his people when Christ comes. The hope of the world is going to be in his arrival how there could be a wonderful inheritance given to all who belong to him. In fact, I want you to notice the the end of the book because it just seals the deal for that picture. Go to the very end of Ezekiel 48. Ezekiel 48, verse 35, very end of the book. In verse 35, it says, The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, 
And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Ezekiel ends by everyone is going to receive the promised eternal inheritance and the name of the city is ultimately the Lord is there. Now, we already read a little bit out of out of Revelation, but Revelation 21 probably gives one of the fullest pictures of what this image is like about being in the very presence of God, that the very essence ultimately of our inheritance is that we get to be with the Lord. And I hope that we would never lose sight of how glorious that idea is. One day. The great inheritance that we are going to possess that is distributed to us equally, regardless of background and regardless of race or gender or any of that, is that you will be where the Lord is. And I can't even begin to fathom what life is going to be like. To be able to live in a spiritual city and say, the Lord is here living with us with full access and seeing him face to face. This is the eternity that God has promised to us. And this is our great hope and our glorious inheritance. So let me bring this back to one other big idea. I said I was going to bring it back to one Concept And that concept is from John 7. In John 7, we read there about how Jesus on the last day of the feast, verse 37, on the great day, he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus is making this offer. I'm the temple. I'm the living waters. If you come to me, you will find the healing and the help and the restoration and the hope that you need. But I want to zero in a little bit tighter on the wording that Jesus said, because I am always just enthralled that Jesus does not say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of me will flow rivers of living waters, because that's accurate and true. But notice what he said. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is a a picture here of Jesus saying that I am the place for healing and restoration and help. But we're supposed to be that as well. That we also are called a temple to the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 2. That we are the spiritual house that is being built up. And we are being described as overflowing with rivers of living water. You might remember, well you won't remember because it was 2020. But I did a series called Overflow back in 2020. uh, And we forgot everything about 2020 except no toilet paper. Uh, Other than that, that was a blur (laughs) that was going on. But there was this huge picture that's being given to us here. Is that as we are enjoying the healing waters that restore the Dead Sea of our hearts. We're then supposed to overflow with healing waters to the world 
so that they can have the Dead Sea of their heart restored as well. Ezekiel has a vision of this temple and the waters just exploding. In fact, I find it fascinating to seize upon that image. It starts with a trickle. And somehow the rivers are going to become so wide, so vast and so deep that it's just going to flow everywhere. And we're the mechanism of that. We're the ones causing the river to flow so that there can be healing and help to the nations. In fact, that wording there, I think, is so powerful. Please think of chapter 47 and verse 9. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And I want us to think about our lives in that picture. That Ezekiel is ending by giving a picture and saying, you understand your mission. Do you understand your purpose? That where your rivers flow out, it's supposed to cause life. It's supposed to cause healing. As I was preparing this afternoon, reminding myself about these notes for this lesson, it struck me because after doing this morning's lesson, there are so many people who talked to me or spoke to me either in detail or aside about how hard life had been and how difficult things were in terms of where they were because of marriages and because of problems and because of relationships. And you have something so powerful and special here that's being given by Ezekiel as a thunderous end. Come to Jesus and receive hope and healing and restoration for your life. That that's the healing you need. That your your greatest hope is to find your purpose and your help and your hope in Christ. And then... As you and I are changed into his image from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3. Then we're able to give hope and healing and restoration to others through the message of the gospel. The book ends. The Lord is there. You can be there. You can help others be there by being rivers of living water flowing with help and hope and healing. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is amazing, Lord, the, the healing that you are able to do in our hearts. And it's amazing to look and see how you can take broken lives and you're able to restore them. And Lord, you're able to take our hurts and our pain and take that brokenness and take all those weaknesses and to be able to restore us and give us life again. And Lord, we can certainly feel like the Dead Sea 
with no life and no hope. And Lord, I pray that we would see the offer that you have given to us. That through your son, we could enjoy rivers of living water. Through your son, we're able to access you. Through your son, we're able to know that we will be where you are one day. So Lord, I pray that you would give us healing in our broken days. Give us help when we feel weak and give us comfort when we feel shaken and help us to see that you are the source of life that we need to not only get through this life, but the source of life we need to be able to enjoy eternity with you. Lord, help us to be life-giving to the world around us. May we be able to be a people that flow with rivers of living water so that we can help be a part of the healing of other people's lives as they come to you. Lord, help us to be instruments of restoration and hope and healing as we help people see the glory of your son, our new temple that gives us all that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope one thing stands strong in picturing this is that to think that we would need a future physical temple is absolutely illogical when you see all that Christ does for us. To read this and go, well, one day we need this new temple that's going to give living water. It doesn't make any sense that Christ is that very picture for us. He's the living water that we need. And you might remember that we started the lesson as well as the prior two lessons that Ezekiel was told to share the message with the people about this vision of the temple so that they would be ashamed of their sins. And I hope in seeing what God has done for us in restoring us with living waters, that it would make us ashamed of our sins and to start living forward for God in the days ahead. Can we help you do that tonight? Turn away from your sins and follow him faithfully with all of your heart. If we can help you in any way, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?